0: And now, your host, Vina Jones Cox,
1: good afternoon. I am Vina Jones Cox, and this is real life real estate investing, where every week we work really hard to make sure that you have the information and inspiration to start or grow your own real estate investing business and Our topic today is the the ever popular i have to do it like once every six months because of the number of questions that build up about this over the course of half a year. It's about entities and tax planning. And I have a great guest for you today, who's not only a CPA, but also a tax attorney. And uh, I want y'all to get ready to ask your questions. Because I don't know what you don't know about this stuff only you know what you don't know about this stuff our number here in the studio is 877-772-9658 that's 877-772-9658 you can also send your questions to askvina at gmail.com that's A-S-K V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. And we will get to that topic in just a second after we talk about what's going on here in the greater Cincinnati area over the next couple of weeks in the real estate world. This month is Open Focus Group Month with Cincinnati RIA. If you are unaware that Cincinnati RIA has 11 focus groups that meet at restaurants and talk about specific issues to specific strategies like wholesaling, retailing, landlording, passive investing, uh, women's issues, creative finance, notes. The list goes on and on and on. It's because those groups are usually open only to members. But just for the month of July, Cincinnati RIA has opened those meetings to anyone who would like to attend and who RSVPs at com. That's Cincinnati, R-E-I-A dot com. Uh, you can go and check out what the upcoming meetings are. There's actually, there's actually one that even falls into August because they didn't have a July meeting because it was on the 4th of July. And that is the wholesale focus group. So just go to com, check out the focus groups down the side of the page, If you see one that says open to the public this month only, you can RSVP to that and you can stop by and meet some other folks that are doing the same strategy you want to do and learn some stuff as well. My guest today is a first time guest here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. His name is Bill Knoll and he's a lawyer and CPA who has developed a kind of a specialized niche um, with real estate investors. His clients range from people who own like one single family property to bigger companies that own hundreds of rental units. And because he's kind of able to combine the accounting part and the tax part and the legal counsel, all under one roof. He has he has lots of these clients who come to him specifically because they're just like you. They're real estate investors who want to know uh, what the best way to keep their money is once they've made it. It's great to go out there and learn how to make lots of money, but if you then lose a bunch of it to taxes and or lawsuits... Well, that's not so good, is it? Uh, He's joining us by phone today from his home in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Bill.
2: Well, thank you, Vina. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you to all of the listeners who are interested in becoming real estate investors or are currently real estate investors. I'm really excited to talk to you today about um, primarily the strategies that exist for tax savings as a real estate investor. Mm -hmm. And so people might get bored with this topic, but once you understand, especially under the new tax code, that, you know, real estate is probably the best asset class for growing wealth while paying the lowest tax rates that exist. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's exciting to me. And I hope to be able to, you know, talk about that today and certainly take some questions from your uh, listeners uh, to help them understand, especially in light of the significant changes to the tax law that occurred called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, passed at the end of 2017, became effective uh, January 1 of 2018, and people probably now either have or will very soon be filing their first 2018 tax return under the new law with lots of changes.
1: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm so yeah we're a full year into that now and there's still a lot of i don't know chatter on the internet about whether it turned out to be a good thing or a bad thing uh just a in general and b for real estate investors in specific so just a big picture do you think it was a good thing
2: so if if you believe paying less taxes generally is a good thing, I'm going to say yes, dramatically. Um, so here, here's, here's what I explain to people, okay? There were a lot of changes. There were a lot of pieces of the tax code which dramatically changed. The one that a lot of people, especially on the kind of coasts that have higher taxes, complained about was a limitation of the itemized deduction, for uh, the payment of state and local taxes. Uh, And that's the one that a lot of people made a lot of noise about. But at the end of the day, the big thing is the tax rates were pretty significantly lowered. So that uh, in my experience, almost all of my clients, and this is true of clients who own their own businesses or who are employees, or who are real estate investors, nearly all of my clients have paid less in taxes in 2018 than they would have under the 2017 law, all things being equal. Mm. Um, the only the only sort of group where I've seen kind of end up owing more, and it's, it's, a, it's a relatively small group, it is generally what I'm going to say are wealthy retirees who pay very significant amounts to financial planners to manage their money because that was a miscellaneous itemized deduction, which is disallowed. So they no longer get that deduction. And a lot of the times the wealthy retirees also have vacation homes on the coast, and they had high real estate taxes. And now you can only take up to $10,000 in itemized deductions on your personal real estate taxes. This has nothing to do with your rental real estate, but when it comes to your personal deductions, not related to rental real estate, you can't take more than a $10,000 deduction. So what I'm going to say, high income retirees, um, I've seen, you know, pay more money and and kind of a significant amount more. But other than that, I've seen most people pay less. Hmm. And I'm not going to say, um, Vina, that it is, so much that it's going to change anyone's life, okay? It might cover, you know, a three-day weekend and a, for, you know, a night nice vacation, you know. Typically, I see people saving $1,000, 2000 $3,000 types of things. So it's money. I mean, it's not a huge amount of money, but what I'm going to say is the people, especially the people who griped about the limitation of the state and local taxes, well, most people don't realize, I don't want to get into the weeds on this. but the vast majority of high income earners never got to take that deduction anyway because they were hit with the alternative minimum tax, which added that deduction back into their alternative minimum taxable income. Mm-hmm. So those people who are complaining about it, most of them don't even understand they never got the deduction to begin with. <laughs> um, so, so on, you know, the across the board, I'd say generally good. Now addressing real estate investors. Okay. Um, the best way to say it is this every great strategy for reducing taxes for real estate investors remained in place under the new law everyone uh, when I speak to groups and teach about real estate investing the um, ability to take significant amounts of depreciation expense which can reduce your taxable income stayed the same Uh, the fact that if you're what's called a real estate professional it gives you the ability to net out any real estate losses that you have against any other income that you've earned. Again, that stayed the same. Um, the fact that you can sell a property through what's called a 1031 exchange, which in, in essence is a just a structure selling a property and buying what's called a replacement property. And as long as you buy up, in essence, you buy a property for more than you sold your property for, um, you can pay no taxes what else? That's at all deferring the game. That stayed in place, and a 1031 exchange used to apply for other types of assets. Now it's exclusively limited to real estate investments. It doesn't apply in the old days, it could apply to a collector car or art, things like that. None of that applies any longer, just real estate investing. So, again, great benefit. Um, And then the other big change that occurred was a thing called the qualified business income deduction that I can talk about later, which is They called it, if you heard about it during the tax um, discussions and debates, the pass-through deduction for business owners. And um, initially I was concerned that that deduction would not be available to real estate investors. However, um, there was some final guidance issued by the IRS just in January. It took a year for us to find out. And the IRS does allow for this pass-through income deduction, even for people who are primarily real estate investors and landlords. So, um, and you know, the one thing I I talk about when I speak to groups of real estate investors is, in a way, is it any surprise that real estate would continue to be, what I'm going to say, a um, preferred asset class for minimizing taxes with the person who's sitting in the White House right now? I kind of doubt (laughs) it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. And uh, we need to we need to take a quick break before we come back and discuss some of the other things that have happened recently. Uh, I also, again, want to invite you listeners, if you have questions about your taxes, if you, you know, challenge them with some entity questions, challenge him with something. I think I've got a question here about even bookkeeping. We're going to we're going to throw whatever we can at Bill today and see how he does, because I can't answer those questions. You guys you guys send me these questions when I don't have a tax expert on the air, and I kind of put them in the little little box in my email and mark them, you know, answer when I have a tax expert, and now I do. Our number here in the studio is 877 Again, that's 877 or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com welcome back to real life real estate investing i'm your host Davina jones cox my guest today is bill noel who is a long time cpa tax attorney works a lot with real estate investors been doing that for a lot of years which is a very specialized little area of tax law and requires you know different kinds of discussions about entity setup and whatnot So he is your guy for those tax questions and complicated LLC questions that I get here and sit and look at and go, I don't know. Um, So today's the day to ask those questions, 877-772-9658. Or you can email them to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com uh as always you know he's sitting in his office in pennsylvania he does not know you so any any information he gives you is going to be like general advice that you then take back to your local tax expert and say this is what i I, this is what i heard what do you think all right, so Bill, let's let's go back to. We're gonna to get to some listener questions here in a moment, but let's go back to the recent-ish tax reforms and talk about a couple of other things. Um, capital gains. W- what has happened with capital gains rates?
2: So, um, Vina, in essence, capital gains rates are are still. Uh, preferred and we're talking capital gains i'm actually talking about long-term capital gains and that means you've held a property for a year and a day at least okay when you sell a property and it's treated as short-term capital gains you pay the tax rate that you would if you earned the income in any other way from wages or from interest or from dividend you pay at the marginal tax rate however when you have a long-term capital gain you get a preferred rate and so um in essence, the rates didn't change, but when they kicked in and increased, did change, okay? So, um, you know, the first one, and I, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but the first one is if you're married and you file a joint tax return and you have a long-term capital gain and your taxable income is below $101,400, the long-term capital gains rate is actually zero. Literally, you don't pay any tax at all on a long-term capital gain. So potentially, if you bought some stock and sold it, and you know maybe someone was laid off or something, and you know you held it for more than a year, you don't pay any tax at all in uh, for federal income tax purposes. Wow. Okay, each each state's different. Okay, but certainly for federal income tax purposes, if your taxable income for married filing joint is below one hundred one four thousand four hundred dollars, you don't pay any income tax whatsoever on that particular capital gain. Uh, Now, um, once you're, if you're, again, and I'm just doing married filing joint, because I think that's what a lot of people have. And it's just to kind of give a flavor because, you know, it's different levels at single or head of household, for instance. But um, for married filing joint, when someone's got taxable income exceeding that first threshold of 101, $400, the rate then goes to 15%. Okay. And, you know, Um, the top tax rate, basically up to about $400,000, is 30% at the top. So it it jumps up in in phases, in steps. But the point I'm trying to make to someone is that when you have a long-term capital gain, you can actually pay tax at about half the rate that you ordinarily must. And so um, the 15% rate applies, again, for married filing joint, from income levels from 101 400,000 up to $488,000. Okay? Um, after the $488,000 taxable income, then to the degree of long-term capital gains exceeding that amount, it's a 20% rate. So it kicks up to a 20%. But here's the thing, under the prior law, all right? That 20% rate kicked in at $250,000. So there was a, a much greater expansion of the threshold for a 15% tax. Now, some people might say, what's the big deal? It's a 5% differential between 15 or 20%, and I guess you could say that. But if you think of it in another way, 5% on 15% is a one-third increase. You know, So in essence, um, the government gave a tax cut of one-third on long-term capital gains for married people with income from 250000 to 488000 So, again, there's a real benefit to um, capital gains. And, and, you know, if you don't mind me kind of uh, jumping to another topic, Vina, um, one of the things that I always like to explain to people is real estate is a way for you to build generational wealth for you and your family. And I talk a lot about the great benefits that investing in real estate has, including the ability to not pay taxes if you do a 1031 exchange. Um, And and the reason that I I like to kind of transition to generational wealth is that um, the new tax law, which took effect, again, beginning January 2018, uh, raised the threshold for married couples where they don't have to pay any federal estate tax Okay, um, to $22.8 million. So that in essence, they doubled the amount of what's called exemption before you have to worry about paying the federal estate tax. So, um, under the current law, an individual doesn't owe any estate tax when they die to the degree that their assets, net of liabilities, does not exceed $11.4 million. But when you're married, you get to double that amount. Yikes. So, Again, um, if you understand how to structure your real estate investments and if you understand that there's a way to grow your wealth, and even if you have a property that you decide probably isn't going to appreciate much in the future, if you understand the ability to use a 1031 exchange to sell out that property and buy what we call a replacement property for more money... Um, you have the ability, in essence, to never pay any tax on the increase in value when you sell that property. And that's how people have built generational wealth in, in just one or two generations, because you can't do that with stocks. You can't do that with other types of investments, but you can do it with real estate.
1: Wow. Wow, that's uh, $22 million. <laughs> that is a That is a lot of money to be able to leave to your heirs tax-free. Uh, we need to go to the phones, Bill, because they are crowding up. We're going to start on line Great. two with Russell, who's calling from Connecticut. Russell, welcome to Real Life Real Estate.
3: Yes, hi. How are you? Um, uh, it, actually, uh, a couple of things you mentioned that um, uh, that that you you were not was it any surprise that there were some laws for, uh, for for real, real estate investors and those who own real estate. What I, I guess was a little surprised was the the uh, first off was the elimination of the uh, home loan interest deduction. And well, um, it,
2: I, it's not an elimination,
3: okay? Okay.
2: Um, for people who are not aware, this is for first of all your primary resident med- residential mortgage interest, okay? So it has nothing whatsoever to do with if you're a real estate investor. And you finance okay. a property, paying interest on a an investment property. It's exclusively on your primary residence. Okay.
3: Oh, okay. Under
2: the under the old law, okay, under the old law, you could write off interest paid on 1.1 million dollars of debt for your primary residence, or a combination of your primary residence and a vacation home, a non uh, investment vacation home. Okay. Right. Uh, under the new law. And this was grandfathered in, so under the new law, for people who buy a residence or a vacation home beginning in 2018, the maximum debt that they can have a interest write-off is $750,000, okay? Okay. So there was a reduction in the amount, again, for primary residents, But this is really, I'm going to say, totally irrelevant for purposes of, people who are uh, investing in real estate, okay?
4: Right, One right. thing I'll
2: just touch on very briefly is mm-hmm. that even for someone who had a home equity loan, okay, um, mm-hmm. and they use the proceeds to purchase a rental property, okay? Okay. There's a way to deduct that interest under what are called the interest tracing rules. It's not something that I can get into in this um, program, but... You certainly can ask an accountant about deducting home equity interest under the tracing rules if that money was utilized to buy another investment property. It would do you no good if it was used to buy a vacation home or if it was used to buy a car or, you know, some other, what I'm going to say, personal use item. But it absolutely is deductible for real estate investors.
3: Hmm. Okay. Uh, And also also if somebody house-hacked... What's called house hacking, where the the uh, the owners live in a basement and rent three other units out. Let's say, would that uh, would they be able to still deduct the interest?
2: Well, I mean, if if the way the law there is no such thing as house hacking under the um, Internal Revenue Code, what happens right. is if you have in essence four units, um, you allocate three to rental. And then one to personal use, so you have to do an allocation. And the okay. one that's personal use is deducted on a Schedule A, and the remaining expenses for rental are deducted on a Schedule B. So, the, and that's always right. permissible, and the law didn't change with regard to that.
3: Yeah, because I had a situation where I sold a I sold a rental in last December, and thought I was going to have a capital gain, and, and was informed that even though I had deducted it uh, over the years as a as an a, as a rental and I mean I had notated it as a rental and all the, and all the the rents I still came out tax free. So I guess it was just uh, without knowing me. all the
2: circumstances I mean it's certainly possible um, But yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't say to, that everyone should count on that happening for them.
3: Right right you know I was kind of I almost thought the accountant might might be incorrect. <laughs> so <laughs> All
2: right well, think. I think Wouldn't know but uh, I'm glad that it worked out that way.
1: Yeah,
3: absolutely. All right. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for your call, Russell. Let's go to line three and talk to Helen in Wisconsin. Helen, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hey, hi. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. I'm just taking you off the
5: speaker because I was listening on
1: speaker. Yeah, because then you get this echo and we hear it back here and you get all confused.
5: Hi, Vina. Hi. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you. This is so much fun. Hey, I have a really specific accountant question, and I'm not sure you'll know the answer, but if you can give me some guidance or direct me to somebody who could, that would be great. Go ahead. So, I have a Roth IRA, and my Roth IRA is, uh, has a single member LLC, of which it's the single member, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm doing business in my single-member Roth IRA-owned LLC, and I'm rehabbing a house, and I've got some rent-to-owns going in and out of there. How do I do taxes for that LLC? My accountant is scratching his head.
2: First of all, okay, um, what you have is a Roth account. A Roth account Mm -hmm. is a form of a trust, a non-taxable trust. Okay, Okay. so what happens is, um, generally, activities which occur in an IRA, whether a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, are not reported for tax purposes like you typically think of. You don't report rental income and expenses, you don't get to take deductions, okay? Uh, Now, if, and this is a big if, and it's not something I can address during the program, but if, your accountant were to determine that you are engaged in what's called trade or business activity. Okay.
4: Mm-hmm. And,
2: you know, trade or business activity might be having a donut shop or a pizza shop. Okay. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's oftentimes not real estate investing. Okay. But if someone, for instance, flipped 80 properties in a year, that probably would be a trade or business activity because it's regular and continuous. If, your accountant would determine that the activities that are taking place within the Roth IRA through this LLC are a trade or a business activity. Then they would need to file a separate tax return under the trust. Okay? Okay. And so um, it's very complicated, and it's really not something that I think um, most of your listeners are going to get, but um, basically it's, it's a separate... Um, business return that's filed for nonprofits. Okay. And so okay. Um, I would suspect that you do not need to file a tax return whatsoever. Again, because okay. the activities within your Roth are non taxable. Uh, now, having right. said that, okay, are you aware of the restrictions on what are called prohibited transactions within an IRS? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. as long as you're not violating the prohibited transaction rules, I don't believe you have any problems with, um, you don't report income, you don't report expenses. It's just, it's a non-taxable activity.
5: Okay, yeah, I mean, I have a manager who is not me for the LLC that is owned by the Roth, because I I don't don't sign anything, I don't do anything.
2: I think generally you're okay, and I don't think there's a need to file
1: anything. Yeah, and what's throwing your CPA for a loop, Helen, is that there's a tax ID issued, number issued, and he can't figure out how do we not... Tell the IRS what this LLC did this year because there's a tax ID number issued, and they're going right, to send they're right. going to send something, and they're going to charge you six thousand dollars for having not filed a return. <laughs> I, and, right. and, and the reason is this is a highly specialized area of accounting. Like, right. uh, like I I know maybe three people in the whole country that I I would I would trust their answer. With my own particular tax return, as opposed to a general answer, uh, if mm-hmm. you want to email me at askvina@gmail.com, at I can give you some of those mm-hmm. names. But uh, okay. it, it is it is likely that your CPA just straight up doesn't understand the whole. Well, I thing. had
5: done some right, and I had gone to University of Google, of course, and you know did my own research on it. And all I can come up with are articles who from CPAs who say you don't file a return. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, okay, but that's University of Google. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, Well, you've got it from Google, uh,
2: too. uh, I will will admit what I can do and what I can't do. And this is an area that I do not do work in because I don't feel that I am knowledgeable enough to do it. Because, you know, ultimately IRAs fall under the ERISA law, which has to do with Mm -hmm. retirement plans. And that's its own kind of separate specialty. And so, um, you know, the people that handle those are generally what are called ERISA people. And I never got trained in in that area of, you know, the tax code. Mm -hmm. So um, you're uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm glad to hear you've got three people in mind (laughs) because I've been looking for someone myself.
1: Well, I can send that to you, too, Bill. Um, That's
2: great. (laughs) Okay.
5: Well, thanks for the knowledge. I really appreciate it. I feel somewhat...
1: Not as nervous as I
5: did, because <laughs> I didn't file a tax return on it last year. And I'm like, am I
1: doing this yeah. right? Chances chances are you're, you're good, Helen. But if you need to pay somebody 200 bucks to look at it and tell you for absolute certain that you were all right, right, I can I can send you some uh Yeah, some I just names. wasn't
5: sure if it was going to be susceptible to UBIT or, you know, any of that other stuff. I'm like, okay, well, I am not that, enough the UBIT kick in, kicks
1: this, in or, The UBIT
2: kicks in if it's a trade or a business. That's what I was alluding to. Right. So. As long as it's not a trade or a business, then you don't have to worry about that. Yeah,
1: and did you did you finance any of these purchases, or were they all cash? Um, one of them
5: is financed.
1: Okay, so somebody somebody does need to sit down and figure out what the uh, finance right. income tax part of that uh, should have been, and it may uh-huh. it may turn out to be zero. I, right.
2: Actually, uh, Vina, I'm pretty sure it'll be zero until the property sold. Uh, I think that's when generally that tax kicks in.
1: Okay. Yes. Yeah, so upon
2: the sale, then there is, and unfortunately, that tax can actually be greater than the long-term capital gains tax.
1: Yes. it, so, it, it can be. But I think we. I think uh, people often find that since since once your IRA becomes a taxpayer, it also gets stake deductions. Mm-hmm. that by the time by the time all of that is figured out the the taxes are not as the taxes on the part of the deal that were financed are not as horrible right. as they look when you first see that It's like a 40% income tax rate yeah it is so so send me an email but for what part of the deal that's financed because only if uh, it's financed you're not making
5: a profit on it on that part of it
1: well yeah so that's a that's a little bit of a complicated calculation Right. I mean, it, it, short version as I understand it is, and I'm just going to make even numbers here. You mm-hmm. got a house you paid 100,000 for and you got a loan for 50. Right. Half of the money that you made would be subject to tax because half of oh. it was financed. Okay. Okay. And that, but yeah. but if it was a rental you get to depreciate it. I mean a, a bunch of things, a bunch of things come into play here. That. Yeah. Yeah, can offset that. Okay. Yep.
5: So alright, I'm gonna gonna I'm gonna shoot you an email and you're gonna give me the people to ask and they're going to guide me and I will guide my accountants because I can't find anybody here locally who knows what I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's so, a small group of people.
5: Yeah, well, you know, I'm a lady of a certain age, I'd like to keep as much money as I can. My IRA's been open for more than five years and I'm over fifty nine and a half and I'm like, Well, why not? Yeah, right?
1: Yeah, let's not let's not lose that.
5: Yeah, let's let's get as much of that benefit as we can. All right,
1: Helen, appreciate all your right. Call. Well,
5: thank you so much. I appreciate it. I know that was probably uh, an
1: advanced question, but you know, I had to ask. No, nope, great question. Appreciate it. Okay thank yep. you and we need to take a quick break when we come back we're gonna take some email questions that have come in uh, if you have a tax question that you'd like to pose to Bill Knoll or ask 9658 or gmail dot com. welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing I'm your host Vina Jones Cox and talking today to Bill Knoll, CPA, tax attorney, smart guy, works with a lot of real estate investors. Also, by the way, one of the featured speakers at the OREA National Real Estate Summit. I know I seem to say that every week now. Well, that's because there's more than 20 speakers coming to the summit this year, October 31st through November 3rd here in Cincinnati. And uh, no, we're not going to have them all on. We don't even have time to have them all on, but we're getting all the the new ones, the folks who have not attended before so that you can get somewhat familiar with how smart they are and can decide to come. There will be more information and a special deal for Real Life Real Estate listeners coming up in about a month here on the show. So listen for that. Uh, In the meantime, if you just want to drool over the schedule of events, you can check it out at oreaconvention.com. That's O-R-E-I-A convention dot com. All right, Bill. I'm going to be doing some rapid fire questioning at this point Shoot. because right. I have a ton of questions here. Um, my question for Mr. Noel is: What would be the best entity for setting up a private lending business? So, in other words, no real estate is going to be owned. Hopefully, sure. hopefully, so, yeah. <laughs> if <Okay>. well. <laughs> yeah, if everything goes well.
2: Yeah, if all goes well. So, um, if if it's truly, if it's truly just loaning money okay um you you don't even need to have an entity set up you can do it individually because the reason that i say that um is you know all you're doing is collecting interest people don't sue you when you loan them money okay now if you are doing a hard money loan you got a second mortgage you foreclose and now you own the property at that point you can contribute the property. And generally, I recommend that if you're a real estate investor holding long-term assets, that you have a uh, LLC, which you elect to have taxed as a partnership. And so, you know, if someone's just doing hard money lending, I don't think they really need to have an entity because they're not going to get sued for lending money. However, in the event that they actually foreclose and take ownership of a property, at that point, they can then contribute the property to their LLC taxed as a partnership so that there is that protection from liability at that point.
1: And I think you just answered the second part of Scott's question, which was, do the tax savings make it worth the setup and maintenance of the entity?
2: Absolutely not. Not not (laughs) for lending money, no.
1: All right. This one is from Gina in Northern Kentucky. She says, I've had an LLC since January of this year. I'm making good money, but I'm concerned about... Uh, taxes. My business is set up as a single member LLC. Should I pay taxes at the end of the year or quarterly? And if it's quarterly, how do I set that up?
2: So first of all, um, you will pay taxes based upon the type of money that you are earning. Okay. And because she doesn't indicate, I can't tell where this is income from what I call a trade or a business. Or income from rental investing.
1: it's from wholesaling.
2: Because it, 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 Oh, with wholesaling yes so if it is wholesaling okay you have a decision to make are you going to call yourself a dealer which means that you are engaged in a trade or a business and you get the same crummy tax rates as anyone with a job w-2 job okay or can you assert that you're this is not dealer property but you're a real estate investor who opportunistically sometimes wholesales property. If that's the case, then potentially you would treat this as short-term capital gains. Okay. But in either event, um, you know, you really want to keep an eye on what your income is. You're not obligated the first year you have an LLC to make estimated uh, tax payments. um, Generally, however, If you don't make those estimated tax payments, you're certainly gonna owe a bunch of money when the tax return is due. So um, she wouldn't be, Gina would not be obligated to make quarterly estimated tax payments, but I would certainly recommend even if she's not making those quarterly estimated tax payments, that she's probably putting away, and again, I don't know what her tax rate is, but I would hope she's putting away 20, 25% bare minimum of her profits um, so that she'll have the money to pay the taxes When they're due,
1: and that was her next question about how much to set aside for taxes. Now that's a guess,
2: so don't hold it against me.
1: She also says, if I want to bring a partner into my business and create a new one, what is the best way to set it up so that we're equal partners? In other words, what type type of legal business entity would you recommend? An LLC, an S corp, etc.
2: Vina, I'm sure you've given this advice before. 50-50 Fifty-fifty partnerships are just a are a time bomb. I not, I not only, only have
1: given that advice; I have lived it.
2: I'm. Just, I. I. <laughs> in fact, when when someone comes to me and says, "I want to form a business with fifty-fifty ownership," I literally say, "I will not do it. I will not do it because this will blow up sooner or later. If there's not going to be a majority owner, I have zero interest in setting you guys up to fail. So." And and I'll give the same advice to this lady, which is don't do it. Mm-hmm.
1: And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean don't don't have a partner if if, if you've thought that through <laughs> completely and you understand. No, it just and, means
2: there needs to be someone who's who's got the controlling vote. And um, it's expensive to properly put together an agreement, even when you have a majority owner. It really takes a lot of thought. And as an attorney, I would say if you're not willing to spend five or $8,000 to put together a document to really outline the obligations and the requirements for each of these investors, just don't even mess with it. And unfortunately, and you probably know this, um, putting together a partnership is just like someone getting married without a prenup. Everyone says it's going to work out. Unfortunately, a lot of times it doesn't. Mhm.
1: Yes and there's other there's other uh, structures for that uh, as well Gina you don't have to like bring this person into your business and make them part of it the two of you could each have your own LLCs and you could have a joint venture agreement that says Exactly
2: R2- I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Gina.
1: Yeah. Uh so and then she has a she has a question embedded here that I think is actually a really interesting one for wholesalers and retailers who are subject to very very high taxes as dealers. And that is, what about having the company collect the money, then we pay ourselves a salary in order to uh, take care of the IRS's requirements that we pay some, you know, Social Security tax and whatnot, and pay the rest out as uh, membership units or, or, you know, stock uh, dividends.
2: I think what she's really referring to is the equivalent of an S-corporation. You can have an LLC that's taxed as an S corporation or you can have an S corporation. And so if you are a dealer, okay, if you are subject to those high tax rates, um, then I agree that um, use use of an S corp is the best way to reduce the bite of the taxes, especially the social security tax, the equivalent of the self-employment tax. Um, The one thing I will say is that when I speak at the OREA convention, I'll be talking about the fact that there's an awful lot of people I think probably treat themselves as dealers unnecessarily because their accountants find it easier for them to do the accounting. Hmm. So um, if someone's interested, um, I've worked with people who've done quite a bit, whether it's wholesaling or just, you know, a significant numbers of kind of flips in a year. um, You know, you've got to be doing a whole, whole lot of them before I'm ready to concede you a dealer.
1: Hmm. Okay, very good. Uh, question from Michael. What can an LLC do, do for me that a land trust can't?
2: First of all, um, a land trust is invisible for tax purposes with the IRS. Okay, um, so the one thing I generally find an IRS studies show is that um, you're more likely to be subject to an IRS audit If you report your business activities on a form 1040 schedule C or your rental activities on a form 1040 schedule E then if you were to report the exact same activities on a partnership tax return so um, you know the, the the filing of a partnership tax return can kind of lower your profile for an audit okay so I'd say that's a benefit okay as for the actual tax due, there would be no difference whether you're using just the land trust or whether you're using an LLC tax to the partnership. So the tax wouldn't change whatsoever. However, again, um, I think the chances of being audited are, are less uh, with the LLC tax as a partnership than simply filing it on your own individual tax return. And by the way, um, being a uh, Pennsylvania for instance doesn't even recognize the use of land trust so in some places and i'm not'm not I'm, not, I'm, I'm kind of land trust agnostic. sometimes I think they're fine and other times I don't think they're so fine uh, and you can also have a land trust and then identify your LLC tax as a partnership as the beneficiary, which gives you the ability to file the partnership tax return but gives you all the abilities to use the the kind of what i'm going to say is the shortcuts that a land trust gives you the ability to do you can actually combine the two.
1: And let me add, Michael, that land trusts actually provide zero asset protection. So if these are rentals that you're wondering whether to own them in a land trust or an LLC, uh, the answer is either an LLC or what Bill just said, which is both. Okay, uh, Bill, Tina has a question from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. She says, and I'm trying to um, uh, shorten this up uh, because we're running out of time here, Uh, She's a 1099 employee. She owns over six figures. She, excuse me, earns over six figures. She also has a real estate investment company that's an LLC, has a few flips, does wholesaling. The profits vary but aren't as much as her salary is. Her uh, tax advisor is telling her that a single member LLC is not a, a, a single member LLC which she has, by the way, taxes and S-Corp, is not a good thing, and that she should... Bad me, not turning off my phone while I'm on live radio. Jeez, what's the matter with you? Uh, So um, she says, is it unwise of me not to have a partner in my LLC, even if it's taxes and S-Corp? Is it worth the hassle of creating another business, and are there limitations on deductions if I don't have a partner?
2: Okay. Um, I'm going to cut to the chase on this. Number one, generally real estate investing should not be done through an S-corp unless you are a dealer doing exclusively wholesaling. If you're holding rental properties, you never want to hold it through a, a, an S-corp, whether it's an S-corp straight or an S-corp tax or an LLC tax as an S-corp. So that's number one. For her real estate investments, it would be, be an incredibly bad idea. On the other hand, for her activities as a subcontractor, I think an S-corp would be an excellent idea. So, you know, in my mind, um, I think it would make sense, especially because she's earning over six figures as an independent contractor, that she'd have an S-Corp for activities as an independent contractor, and then potentially have uh, an LLC, uh, even potentially LLC taxed as a partnership. And I'll, in my presentation, oh, real, I'll explain how even if you're a single person, you can create an LLC taxed as a partnership controlled exclusively by you. Mm. So that's what... I would suggest for her.
1: Very nice. Um, Bill, I suspect that we are out of time. we out of time, Mike. And man, I've got like four other questions sitting here in the inbox. So we're definitely gonna have to have you back. Well, I'd love that. (laughs) Because when I say, hey, there's somebody here who can answer your tax questions, all of a sudden everybody's all over it. So appreciate you coming, Bill. Look forward to seeing you in November at the National Real Estate Strategy Summit here in Cincinnati and we'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing until then happy investing.